And Lord, there is no one who loves like you love, no one who cares like you care, and no one who is able to save like you have saved us. Lord, because you have set us free from the world's sin and judgment, we just rejoice through this time of worship. But now, Father, we dig into your word, God, that you would teach us and instruct us, direct us, Lord, in the ways that we live our lives, that we in turn, Father, would be a witness to those who so need what you have to offer. And so, Father, I lift up Calvary Chapel, Ontario this morning, that you would bless us, but most of all, Lord, that you would speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Neighbor? Penny, are you doing the info booth today? Um, the kiosk is out of order until tomorrow. How you doing? Good morning, Jim. How are you? Good. Jerry, you never say hi to me. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Easy now. <laughs> Jerry's part of the Calvary Chapel Ontario Ballet Society. Just <laughs> Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be picking up at verse uh, 12, actually. And as you're turning there, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of front of you underneath your seat but if there isn't if you raise your hands the ushers will bring one to you does anybody need a bible a couple years ago after service somebody had to set me straight on something that i said and they were right i was wrong it was memorial day and i asked all the veterans to stand so that we could pray for them but memorial day is remembering those who have passed away as they've been serving the country so this year i think it got it right today tomorrow actually is veterans day so everybody who's a veteran will you stand up and allow us to pray for you what a blessing just Personally, I, I had an opportunity with two of my son-in-laws to experience what families go through as they were both deployed. And deployed in a foreign country or, or not, there's that separation. And just want to thank the gentlemen who are standing here and the young ladies who serve uh, in that capacity and just the sacrifice that they make. And so I just want to lift them up in prayer. Father, I lift up these who stand before you right now, and I thank you for their service because truly, Lord, it is service. And as they give of themselves, Lord, for this nation, I just pray, Lord, that you will bless them for what they have done. But it also reminds us of those, Lord, even right now who are serving and those who are even on the front lines, Lord, that you would watch over them and protect them. God, we've been given this great freedom, but the price of the freedom was not free. It came at the cost of blood. And so, Father, we just thank you for the memory as well of the veterans who served so faithfully. And so, God, I just lift up those who are amongst us that you would bless them as well. Lord, we also lift up your word and just pray, God, that you would use it to minister to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and everybody else stand for the reading of God's word. Jerry's getting good exercise here today. 1 John chapter 4, I'll start reading at verse 12. Apostle John writes, No one has seen God at any time. 
If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected amongst us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Father, again, we just lift up this section of scripture, this instruction that has been given to the body of Christ, these things that we are to work out in our personal lives so that our corporate lives would be all that it can be, that we would be that useful tool in your hand. And so again, Lord, as we open your word, we just simply ask that you would bless us with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last week in our review of this first epistle, the Apostle John, we saw that he has been offering us three main proofs of our salvation, three main ways that we may know that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And we saw in the first chapter the main reason why he is writing this epistle, so that our joy may be full. Persecution either had come upon the church or was coming upon the church, but John wanted the church to dig in and do these things that Christ had commanded so that, not that they would be happy, but they would be joyful in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, understanding that their future and eternity, that's tied up in God. It's tied up in Christ. And there's no situation or circumstance or man or government or anybody else that can, well, that can change that. We have a government that very few of us are happy with. It seems like never happens that way, especially in California. But you know what? My future isn't tied up in California. My future is tied up in Jesus Christ. And where he is, one day I will be also. And so that is to be my focus, and that's to be where my joy is centered upon. And so the proofs that he talked about, and again, we reviewed them last week, was first a moral test. And keep in mind, test, it's not that there's going to be a test after service, but it's a test that is used to determine quality, such as you would test the purity of gold. And so the test, the purity of your relationship with Christ, moral test, are you a person who practices righteousness? The idea behind that is a perfect person that works at a condition that is acceptable to God, not for salvation, but because of salvation. And the idea, once again, is the Bible studies that I attend, the word that I consume, are these things having an effect upon my life? Now, you see the importance of it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's pretty powerful. 
If we're not doing these things, if we're living a life of the flesh, if we're living a life of the world, now I'm not saying that we don't stumble and fall and sin, because John did acknowledge that in in chapter 1, verse 9, as far as we have the necessity to repent. But if we're living a life that is continually in the flesh and have no desire for the Lord or the things of the Lord, again, that strong verbiage, he who does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Secondly, we saw the doctrinal test. This is belief in the truthfulness of God's word and Jesus Christ is God, Lord, and Savior. And so once again, there's some pretty strong verbiage that lends towards the importance of it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, when he says, Who is a liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And the idea behind a liar isn't so much that he's speaking untruths or he's speaking lies, it's that his whole existence is a lie. The basis of his salvation is a lie. The fact that he is saved and considers himself to be saved, he's a liar. And who is it? The worst person that you can lie to other than God would be yourself. As we'll tell ourselves lies a lot of times in situations that, well, situations that we desire but are contrary to what is good and right, we'll lie to ourselves telling us everything is okay. John doesn't want these people to think everything is okay. He doesn't want you to think that everything is okay if it's not. If there's change to be made, again, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, cleanse us from every unrighteous thing. And then what we've been focusing on, because it's what John focuses upon, is the social test. Simply stated, do you have a sacrificial or agape love for the brethren? And church is a good place to put that at test. How do you get along with one another? And especially those people who maybe are contrary to you. Maybe they flat out irritate you. Maybe you think, man, I just have a real difficult time with that person. Well, there's the perfect opportunity to express sacrificial love that you would know that you're living your life in the truth. Because if, in fact, there is something that is lacking in that person and not lacking in you, if that's true, then maybe God is going to use you and the love that you exhibit towards that person to bring that person to where they need to be. Or maybe it is you who's lacking because you don't have a love for the brethren and he desires to bring you to where you need to be. Again, importance in 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, but he who hates his brother, when he says hates his brother, the idea is simply he who does not love his brother is in darkness, we saw that, a godless existence, and walks or lives his life apart from God, lives, or walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so you see the seriousness of these things and the repercussion of these things. If these things are missing in your Christian life, first of all, you have to reconsider, do I have a Christian life? Is my, was my salvation truly genuine? And if you come to that conclusion that it was, then, well, maybe let me put it this way. Are you lacking joy in your Christian life? If you're acting, lacking joy in your Christian life, maybe you're not living a life that is dedicated to the Lord, walking in righteousness. 
Maybe. Well, maybe you're not doing the things he's called you to do. Maybe your doctrine isn't where it needs to be. You haven't grown in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe you do not have a love for the brethren. And so John is really focused upon this concept of loving the brethren. We've been looking at it for a couple of chapters, and the only reason that you focus on one particular thing, especially one thing out of three things, is because that one thing is the thing that's missing. And since John is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just a thing that was lacking at the church of John's day, although it was. It's a thing that would be lacking in the church throughout the history of the church age because we so easily, through pride, pull into ourselves. We use love the way the world uses love to get something for ourselves rather than give of something of ourselves. And so I would say of these three, love, love is the one that God is most concerned about. It should be that which gets our attention. And so we're looking at John's teachings here in chapter 4 under three main headings. The first one we looked at last week was love defined. We see that in verses 7 through 12. Today we'll be looking at love as a result of sound doctrine in verses 13 through 16. And then we're going to look at contentment, the contentment that we have from doing those things who exhibits the love of God, verses 17 through 19. I defined love last week. It's been said that love is a divine, or sorry, love is a driving part of our character arising out of God's divine nature that by his grace is now also within the Christian. It's that love, and we see this stated here in verse 19 of our chapter today. We love him because he first loved us. The love that he exhibited on the cross that drew me to the cross and brought me into a relationship with him is the only way that I will ever be able to love outside of myself or exhibit that sacrificial love. And so we saw a commonality last week between verses 7, 11, and 12, and this command, it was repeated three times, love one another. If God is in you, his nature will be observed through you. In verse 8, we saw that God is love. Now, the world has confused this. They'll say that love is God, but that's not true because there's different loves that people exhibit, and just because you're exhibiting one of those dynamics of love does not mean that you're of God. But we are told that God is love. He is the personification and the definition of love. So once again, we look to the cross to see that, to see that example of sacrificial love as Jesus was dying for the world. It's an integral part of the nature of God because we see in different parts of John's writing, God is spirit, John chapter 4 verse 24. We see that John is, I'm sorry, God is light in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, and once again we're reminded that God is love. Now closing last week, and it's important, I've said it many times, and I don't want it just to be an afterthought of the closing of the study of last week, but when we see important concepts in the word of God. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we see these seven spiritual blessings. And each of those spiritual blessings, we see a member of the Holy Trinity. We see two of them that 
come from God the Father and that he chose us and he adopted us into his family. There were three that come from Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. We were headed for destruction. He supernaturally forgave us of our sins. And then fourthly, we have the realization of God's word and the knowledge of what it means. And then in verses 13, it might be 12 through 13, I'm sorry, 14, we have the blessings that come from the Holy Spirit and that we have a guarantee of our inheritance and we were sealed until that time we come into the presence of God. So a picture of the Trinity, we have it, it repeats again, different contexts in chapter four, in many places throughout the Bible. Well, this concept, it lends towards the importance of this concept as we see in verse seven, it speaks of the love being of the nature of the Father. And then in verses 9 through 11 speaks of love being the nature of the Son. And then verse 12 speaks of love being the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then he tops it all off in verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And again, that's the Greek word gnosko. That means you have not experienced God. You may oida God, you may know about God, but you do not know God to the degree that you have a relationship with God. So now we move on to our second point. Now that we've seen love defined, we move on to love as a result of sound doctrine. Verses 12 and 13, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected or matured in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So that's the doctrinal concept here is the realization of the Holy Spirit and the proofs of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our studies, which we're not going to go very deep into this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, I think our ladies should be able to come up here and teach this because you went through it this summer. Maybe you know more about it than I do now. But there's three experiences that mankind can have with the Holy Spirit. And the first one is the para. These are Greek prepositions. But the para experience of the Holy Spirit. In English, this means the Holy Spirit with us. We see this in John chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his apostles, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit that all of humanity has, whether you're saved or you're not saved. This is not the Holy Spirit within you. This is the Holy Spirit as, as he is calling you to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. To ignore this call of the Holy Spirit that's defined as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. Do you remember before you were saved? When somebody, when, when you had old Fred there, and Fred was this born, you know, Jesus freak. And, and man, he's going to come and he's going to talk about Jesus again because that's all Fred ever talks about is Jesus. And, and, and you're, well, who cares? What difference does it make? If it's not true, he's just living in fantasy world and why do you really care? But unfortunately, there's this conviction that every time he talks about Jesus to me, I just have this guilt and I just want to snuff it out. But then you came to this realization of Christ and who he is, and you repented of your sins. And then you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you entered into this relationship, and then you experienced the second experience of the Holy Spirit, which is the Greek preposition in, e-n 
but the Greek en is the same as our in, and it's what I just spoke about in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It's the Holy Spirit as he comes and takes up residence within us. That's what we're going to focus upon, although there is another experience of the Holy Spirit. It's the epi experience of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon us for the work of ministry. We see this in Acts chapter 2. But what we'll be focusing on here is the in-I-in experience of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, or he dwells in us. And it's through that that well, there's still this conviction when I sin that I know I need to be brought back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is to confess my sins, to repent. It's the Holy Spirit when he shows me opportunity. It's the Holy Spirit that enables me, who dwells inside of me, who enables me to do the word of God. I mean, have you ever done or said something that you didn't know you knew or were unable to do, you know, as far as for the Lord? had an opportunity to witness to somebody, and this time you finally opened your mouth. This time you're going to follow through, and all of a sudden you heard things coming out of your mouth that you didn't really know that you knew. That's the Spirit who dwells inside of you. Or whatever it is that He has called you to do, you've done it, and after you've done it, you think, wow, that was just amazing. You knew that wasn't really of you, but you really couldn't put your finger upon how that really happened. No, that was the Holy Spirit working through you. For those people who make the effort, who open their mouths or put forth the, the energy, it's those who get to see the, the evidence of the Spirit within them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He signed, sealed, and delivered us. And so that being the case, it's that existence of the Holy Spirit that will enable me to do that which is beyond me, not of the flesh, but of the work of the Spirit once again through me. If the Spirit is within me, then there will be evidence of morality, of love, and of doctrine or truth. These evidences will be revealed by the Spirit. Now, when I say by the Spirit, maybe a better term here is going to be through the exhibiting of the fruits of the Spirit. Because, again, I'll bring up the illustration that you're all probably sick and tired of hearing about by now, but my peach tree and my apricot tree. Now, my peach tree is planted right next to my apricot tree. And I don't remember somebody was over from the church and they said, "Uh, is that the famous fruit trees? And I said, yeah, well, how do you know which one's which? Or no, they just asked me, which one is which? Well, I know exactly which one is which because I know the one that I take the apricots off and I know the ones that I took the peaches off. I know them by their fruits. And you are to be known by the fruit that you produce. Now, we're told specifically this illustration in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, there's many theologians, which I agree here. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, when it says fruit, that's singular. There's one type of fruit that is put out by the Spirit, but there's many dynamics to that fruit. And so, linguistically, when you're trying to determine what is said, you see that the writer is writing singularly. So when he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, the dynamics of love are joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And so if the Spirit is dwelling inside of me, if I'm truly born again, because the Spirit dwells inside of those who are born again, as we've just seen, how will we know that I'm of Christ? Well, I'll be producing fruit. And the fruit reveals the, the, the inner workings of the Lord within me. And so these dynamics of love, as I'm exhibiting this sacrificial love, as I'm exhibiting love to people who I may not receive love back in this life, I'm going to have peace. I'm going to have a contentment with the Lord that I'm just to do the things that Christ has commanded me to do and the Spirit has directed me to do. I don't have to keep the 613 commandments or anything like that. The Jew never had peace because he had to stay on top of all that stuff. But the only thing I need to do is what I know that God has called me to do. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to have peace in my life. Well, he's called me, as we've just seen, to be loving. As I'm exhibiting that love, I'm going to have peace. A lot of times, especially when it comes to sacrificial love, we won't exhibit that love. Why not? Because we're worried about somebody may take advantage of me. We're talking about, well, I may give love, but what if they give hate? We, we're, we're concerned about what may, may happen to us because when we exhibit love to somebody who loves less, we're afraid of what we may get back in return. And so we make ourselves vulnerable. Do you remember the first time that you ever told your spouse that you loved them? You didn't know what they were going to say. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Or, well, that's nice, but I don't love you. You know, you just never know. You're making yourself vulnerable is my point. And as you make yourself vulnerable, well, as you make yourself vulnerable in God's sight, he's going to deal with the situation. I just need to do what God has called me to do, and then I will have peace, contentment in my life. Long-suffering is another dynamic. Long-suffering, again, it's that person who, and it's not that that person is a bad person, and maybe you're that person in somebody else's life. We all have to consider that. But it's just that person that, <laughs> I think, <laughs> that wasn't a joke. <laughs> just think of the compound word long-suffering, as I pointed out before. It means to suffer long. It means to die to yourself for a long time for that person's benefit. And as we are people who are long-suffering, because people do stupid things. I mean, not people in our church, but other churches. That's why you come here. But we all do stupid things. We all say stupid things. And we all just simply make mistakes. But as God has given me grace, I need to give others grace because we're an imperfect people. And these are the people that we are to suffer long because just think of how long God suffered with you. How long he suffered with you when you were in an unsafe state and how long he continues to suffer with you. And that none of us are perfect. Another dynamic is kindness. This is to act towards one another as God acts towards mankind. Again, to reflect Jesus Christ by giving this kindness. It's the goodness of the Lord or the kindness of the Lord that led us to salvation is that God didn't wipe you out, snuff you out the very first time that you messed up, but God continues to strive with us, to work with us, and to lead us. Goodness, this is to exhibit God-likeness. Again, to exhibit Christ to those who are in the body of Christ. Faithfulness, this is the ability to be reliable in all situations. This is to have obstacles placed in front of you and continue to push on 
to continue to move forward regardless of the obstacle. If you placed it there or somebody else placed it there, it just really doesn't matter. But to know what is right and good in God's sight and continue to do it. And this contextual example, to exhibit love for others and regardless of what comes back, regardless of what the result is, just to continue to do it. Because again, what does God bless? God blesses when we do what God has told us to do, or God blesses obedience. Gentleness. This is the ability to remain humble at all times. Christ, again, the perfect example upon the cross. As he was humbled, we are to be humble as well. And then lastly, self-control. The ability to die daily to fleshly desires, to have control over mind, body, and actions to be reminded of who I am. You know, my kids, as we sent them off to a friend's house to spend the night, we'd remind them of who they are. I don't think they really cared about that, but we still reminded them of who they are. And our desire was is that they would exercise self-control as they were beyond our control. Well, God is always under control, but he asks us to exhibit that self-control. Somebody get you angry, don't be angry in return. Somebody smite you, don't smite them in return. Because think about it, anger. Somebody else is angry at you. Well, that's their sin. Their sin is upon them. It's, they're missing the mark there, and they need to do, they need to repent of it, move on. But a lot of times that anger isn't really acknowledged until it's displayed towards somebody else. And so if somebody acts towards you in anger, okay, we've got Fred here now, and Fred's freaking out. Fred's angry at something, now it seems like all of that anger is directed at me. Well, what have we been trained to do, especially if you're a man? Hey, if somebody hits you, you better hit them back. If somebody's angry at me, well, then I'll get angry at them. And the bad thing about it is that anger starts to flow like a cancer throughout the body of Christ. But what happens if Fred gets angry at me, and I just, I'm patient with, well, fill in the blanks here the things we just talked about. I'm exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, love, and all of those dynamics of love. Then the anger stops there. Fred, at some point, is going to be convicted, or maybe I'm able to minister to him in such a way that it's dealt with, and the body is spared, and the work of Christ goes on. But it's when we start acting forth in the flesh that these things, these things are horrible within the body of Christ. When God dwells in you, he becomes the priority of your thoughts, your plans, and your perceptions. You perceive things through God-filtered glasses, if you will. He opens your eyes to his truths. You see how these things work together according to the glory of God, but also you see how the opposite working together for the glory of man, or at least according to their flesh. And so as Christ is being denied in our society, doesn't surprise me that our society is going in the direction that it is going and making the decisions that it is making. If we truly had a Christian society, it wouldn't be going in this direction. But guess what? I've read to the end of the book. We don't have a Christian society until we're in the presence of Christ. And then thirdly, he turns your rebellious ways to his holy desires. It's the Spirit working in me that is going to enable me to do the things that John is writing about so that my joy, my contentment will be full. Now, I'm not telling you because you are a Christian that you have to love or you must love to remain one. I'm not telling you that. 
but simply, if you are born again, the desire is going to be there. And what I want you to do is not just to do something, I want you to search out that desire and follow Christ and see that desire to love be brought to maturity, be brought to its fullest, that you would truly be that example of who Christ has called you to be. And so, how are you going to respond to the Holy Spirit? The choice is yours. Now, listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, and what we're being told here in Ephesians chapter 4 is I can grieve, I can bring to grief the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I do that? Well, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. So what he's telling us here is these things aren't naturally going to happen. God doesn't just grasp you and force you. These are decisions that I got to make. I got to make the decision to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. I can grieve the Spirit, if you will, and not allow it to flow out. And so I must be reminded because the reason we don't do these things or the reason we act forth in bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with malice is because we have an improper perspective of ourselves an improper perspective of that other person. And because of that, Paul writes, again in Ephesians 4 here, even as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? He forgave you by grace you have been saved. That means you didn't deserve it. You didn't get into heaven because God says, man, I really need that guy in here. I want that guy on my team. No, you, you should have been thrown on the other team. You should have been cast away from God. But he exhibited grace, and he brought you in. Again, not because of anything that was desirous other than your heart, the person who you are, because as soon as he brought you in, what is he doing? He, he's, clearing every, he's cleaning off the hard drive, and then he's rebuilding according through his word how he desires for it to be. And so I come into the kingdom of God, and I'm a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I come in contact with this other guy, Harry. Harry's a pain in the neck. He goes to my church. And as soon as I walk through the door, Harry's there. And man, God has just put him in my life to, I don't know, maybe there is really a purgatory, and Harry's the personification of because he just causes me to suffer. And after a while, you can just get sick and tired of Harry. Well, I got news. There's always going to be Harry's in the body of Christ. And how you relate to that person is really the ultimate definition of how well you are maturing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because think of it this way. Although maybe you don't like Harry, God loves Harry. And God wants to bring, or has brought either way, into his kingdom. And now God wants to do work of change. Just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you by grace you have been saved, Harry is going to be saved or is saved by grace as well. And so as none of us came into the kingdom of God according to our own merit, but God's merit, then we're all equal. There's not one person in here. I don't care how, maybe you've only committed one sin. You're the first person that's only committed one sin in all of your life. God doesn't love you any more than the person who's committed 10 million sins. 
but nonetheless has repented of them and come into that right relationship. I'm the pastor, and God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. And so that being the case, should I love myself more than I love you? Or, you know, just, just take all of that into your situation as well. No, I have to exhibit sacrificial love. And the only way that you know that sacrificial love is sacrificial is if the person is hard to love. If perfect love depends upon the Holy Spirit, then how do I receive the Holy Spirit? You get saved. You simply ask. You ask. You respond to the gospel of Christ. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him, Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, that's the premise of what John is writing about, so that we know that we are saved, because if you're saved, the Spirit is the seal. The Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. To possess the perfect, mature love that salvation brings, you must make a confession of faith. And usually it's one of two things that people leave out as far as the salvation process. Salvation process. There has to be, number one, repentance. Jesus came preaching, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist was preaching the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so you recognize that you're a sinner and you repent of your sins, but it can't stop there. There also must be a confession of faith towards Jesus Christ. Because just to repent of your sins puts you in the same category as Judas or Esau. Judas hung himself, and Esau was described in the Bible as a profane person. You have to come into the relationship with Christ. Now, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. So he's talking about this correlation between what we speak and what we believe, our heart. There's a close relationship between the two. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is all, same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so belief comes from the inner person. Confession is that outward manifestation of the belief that you have within your life. Now, do I need to go out into the streets and you? you no. You just confess. You go on record as believing before God. This is a confession that you make. God. You can do it publicly. You can do it privately. It doesn't matter. As long as you do it, you make that confession of faith to Jesus Christ, responding to his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, confession is displayed through words and actions. Words and actions. You can just have words, but you have to back it up by actions. You can just have actions, but you got to back it up by words. Now, I think the perfect example here is the marriage bed. The marriage bed? Yeah, Terry and I the other night. Get your minds out of the gutter. I'm not talking about that. She had two beds. We have two beds. And she wanted me to flip them in rooms. Put, take one out of one room and one to another room. 
Well, I thought that was a stupid idea. Because we have a big room, and we have a queen room in this big room, and we can use it, you know, when people come over, whatever. And then we have a single bed in this real small bed. Now, the big room is about 12 feet by 20 feet. Somebody who, people who had the house before has added on. It's where the, the twins, uh, that was the twins' room, and when the twins lived at home. And then the single room is, I don't know, 10 by 10, 12 by 12, whatever it might be. Well, she wanted to put the big bed in the little room, and the little bed in the big room. And for me, that makes no sense whatsoever. And so I just had the mindset, whatever. And I was thinking, you know what? If you really want it, you can do it yourself. I didn't say that because I'm a wise man. And so, all right, let's do it. Let's just get it done. So I got up and went over there to do it. Even though I'd worked all day, I'd gotten up early, did the men's Bible study at church on Wednesday and all that stuff, I still did it because I am going to act sacrificially. Well, I, I did it, and, you know, it was a pain in the neck because this one, the little bed had this base to it that I didn't want to take all apart, could hardly get it out of the door and around the corner and the whole thing, and I had to take the headboard off and then finally get it in, and the other queen bed and just fit, and it kind of came out good. She was right, <clears throat> yeah, she was that. She was right. And it looks pretty good. And you can say, my pastor, just loving his wife sacrificially. Not really. I did the deed, but I, didn't have, I had a, a really bad attitude. And to have a bad attitude detracts from the deed. There has to be a confession, but they have to be backed up with the action. And the spirit, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, but your spirit, your personality you got to be into this, and you must be all into this, because if you don't, you grieve the Holy Spirit. And so the things, that, the things that God has given me, the people that God has given me to minister, I can't just do it superficially or just go through the motions. If I'm going to be truly in, I've got to be all in. But it's when we're all in that we see good things happen. I know that God loved me because he was all in. The cross demands that you be all in. 15 through 17. Not in second, I don't know why I'm in second Peter. I was thinking, wait, that's not where we're at. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Whoever goes on record and makes that confession, verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides or lives his life in the light or lives his life in God and God in him. We have that perfect definition of what a relationship is. I'm giving of God and I'm in God. I'm in the word and in the spirit and in these things that he's called me to do. And God in turn is in me. And so we have the perfect give and take of a really great relationship. And so he who abides in love abides in God. And John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so people should come in here and they should experience the love of God and think God's in that church. How do you know God's in that church? Because those people exhibited love. I remember we were going to this doctor that was in the... Um, used to call it, oh, the Lagos building down in Costa Mesa. It's a high-rise building that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa had bought quite a long time ago. It's where K-Wave is, is broadcast from. And my wife and I were in the uh, parking lot, and their doctor just happened to be on the same floor as K-Wave. 
and in the parking lot, or maybe his wife, when we got in the elevator, Don Stewart was there. And maybe about a month before, he came and he taught at our church. And we were just talking about something completely different. And we got out of the elevator, and we went off to our left, and he went off to the right. And just before he went in there, he goes, hey, Mike. Yeah? You got a really loving church. Now, he didn't have to say that. He, he went out of his way to stop and to say it. It's not just something he's, you know, just saying to make me feel good or anything. He wanted me to know that. And I, I, I like to think that God, you know, it's something, a work of God, but it's the giving of the word and it's the doing of the word, the digestion, but also the, the, the acting forth in the word of God so that somebody who is a man of God comes in here and thinks, God's in here. In actuality, that's what he was saying, that God's here because we experience the love that the brethren has for one another. Thirdly, love defined Love is a result of sound doctrine and then contentment through love expressed. Verses 17 through 19, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, we're told, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest is love. Why? Because there's going to come a time when there will be no longer the necessity of faith or the necessity of hope. When you're in heaven, you no longer have to walk in faith or walk in hope because God is right there. But what's going to continue for all eternity? Love. And the best thing that we can exhibit here is the love that we will be exhibiting up there. It's that which God honors. The love of God and the love from God works in all of our lives throughout the three dynamics of our existence, future, present, and past. As far as future, verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And the day of judgment, we're Christ. And there's going to be that realization, any doubt that you may have today, I mean, if you're genuinely saved, when you're in heaven, it's not going to exist because there's going to be perfect love. The love of Christ is going to be overwhelming, but we love him because he first loved us. And your love for him is going to be well known for you as well. There's just going to be that surety. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then, well, that's our future. We're going to be with the Lord. How about our present day, verse 17? Because as he is, so also are we in the world. This is positional in the eyes of the Father. We are right now as he is in the sight of the Father. It's the doctrine of justification. God looking upon you just as if you have never sinned. He looks upon you as he looks upon his son. He looks upon you and sees holiness and righteousness. He also sees a project, a lot of work to be done, but he sees holiness and righteousness. God considers his children And it's those who came into belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John, or John chapter 1. Thirdly, how God's love worked for us in the past. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. This is eternity past because what is salvation plan called? The gospel? It's called that which was from the foundation of the world. 
God, if he truly inhabits eternity, which we're told in Isaiah that he does, then he knew you before you even existed. And he had a plan for your salvation before you even committed your very first sin. The love of God had been working. You entered into the love of God as you were born, as God created you. And it's an amazing concept if you sit and meditate or or think seriously on these things. Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his sin, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God has seen you at your worst, he's seen you at your best, and neither the matter to him because he just simply loves you. Max and Henry, my grandchildren, two of my grandchildren, came over yesterday and again, they were doing the things that a three and I think a six-year-old does, and that's okay because I just simply loved them and loved having them in my house because I just see them as being perfect knowing that they're not. And so we have this concept that God has given us of love. And in that love, as we are exhibiting that, he says, I'm going to give you a content life so that your joy may be full that as you're doing these things, these things are proof that are to speak to your soul. As they speak to your soul, you're able to know and understand that God dwells inside of you, that you've been sealed for that day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen How can he love God whom he has not seen? Now notice it says, how can he love God whom he has not seen? There's a question. And when a question is asked in that particular way, the answer is always to the negative. And so look at it from the negative perspective. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And the answer implied is he can't. He just simply can't. Because again, this is a test of the genuineness of our salvation. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. He must. It's that which we need to work. Far be it from us that we would grieve the Spirit, but we would bring joy to the heart of God. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for the goodness. We thank you for your graciousness, Lord. We thank you for the love in which you have bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. But, Lord, as children, that means we've been brought into a family, and family means brothers and sisters. And so, Father, I know as a parent to see my children, my grandchildren all getting along, it warms my heart. Father, help me to be a man. Help us to be people who warm your heart. And so, Lord, I pray that each person individually in this room would consider these things and how these things relate to their lives. And, Lord, again, if there's a necessity of change, you have told us just to start off in this epistle that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And, Lord, it's you who will cleanse our soul. And so, Father, these are all realities of our Christian life. I pray, Father, that we would march forward walking in light just seeking God your will and acting forth in that will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?